The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Therefore, please remember that evolution, the concept, the idea of evolution, is the fundamental answer to some of the fundamental questions. Because people can ask, why are we here? And one possible answer is to evolve. Why does the universe want us to evolve? Well, we don't have a clear answer to that yet. So we can simply say because, but the first question still remains. No, many people would say, what is the meaning of life? And the possible answer to it is evolution. Of course, the question still remains, why? Well, we don't bother about that why right now. The whole point is that the idea of evolution is fundamental. And I would like to share, not only in the yoga practice, but I would like to share some ideas which result from this fundamental concept. First of all, the idea of evolution is the ultimate valuing concept in terms of morality in terms of good and evil. I don't know if you actually thought about that, but can't you see that in various spiritualities of the world, what is moral and what is immoral slightly differs? Like in some religions, non-violence should be absolute, but in some religions, if you are killing the Protestants or if you are killing the Catholics, or if you are, it's okay. So it's not that absolute. In some religions, if you drink one glass of wine, it can inspire you. And if you drink three glasses of wine, it comes from the devil and you are vice-ridden. While in some religions, if you touch a drop of alcohol, you become an outcast and it's a great sin. In some religions, if you charge usury on money, interest on money, it's a great sin and you shouldn't do it. And in some religions, it is allowed to charge interest on money, special on some social categories, which can be exploited mercilessly, and they actually deserve that you should charge interest on money loans for those, because those are the non-holy ones, or something like that. And therefore, the idea is that when we look in the world, we can't even understand what is good for one person is bad for another group. What is good for one group is bad for others, and that's why we wonder, are all these things arbitrarily made? What is the common denominator of all the morality and ethics on this planet? And the great yogis have been unanimous at this. It's the evolution. And the idea is as simple as that. Whatever you do or anybody does which favors evolution is good. Because evolution is the will of God. God sent us here, if you prefer a theological view, God sent us here to evolve. So in the moment when you help somebody to evolve, maybe even faster, you are doing a good deed. And in the moment when you hinder somebody's evolution, maybe you cannot stop it forever, but maybe you can hinder someone's evolution for 50 years. Lag it a little bit, flag it for 50 years or for 500 years or for some, then that is evil. 
try to think in these terms if things don't change perspective immediately. I'm going to do this act. This act, is it going to help me evolve, grow up spiritually, or on the contrary, is going to turn me into an animal and turn me back or flag me on the path of evolution? This act which I'm going to do, is it going to help other people evolve? Or is it actually going to keep them from evolving? It's very simple, really. Because it's not the problem if the wine is good or bad. The problem is if drinking the wine inspires you spiritually or it turns you into an animal which becomes possessed by spirit and vice-ridden and thus debases from the quality of being a human being and turns back to subhuman levels of existence. And therefore, all the moral and ethical things in this nature were preached by great visionaries, saints, seers, clairvoyants, enlightened beings, and so on, who thought that they had some answers. For example, the Muslim saints and mystics or the Hindu saints and mystics thought that it was not worth playing with alcohol under any form. That is why in Hinduism, if you drink wine, you become an outcast. It's one of the rules of Manu in the laws of Manu, that if you touch alcohol, you lose your caste privileges and you become a pariah. You become an outcast. It's as simple as that. Why? Because Manu thought and thought and thought, and then he said, it's not worth giving any lead to this, because some people will, f will do it more, will push the envelope a bit more, will push the envelope a little bit more, and then they will step over the red line, and it will be on my shift. And therefore Manu said, I better tell everybody straight out, no alcohol. It's much more simple to say no, not at all, than to play with it and say up till a glass, well, there can be a glass as big as this, right? <laughs> if you are really smart, no? Up till a glass, it's okay. But people are pushing the envelope, aren't they? So therefore, try to think about this. We always think about what is good. I want to do something good with my life, but I don't like the Christian theology. It pisses me off. I don't like my old traditional society from which I come. Always think in terms of evolution. What I am doing now promotes evolution, mine and others'. What I am doing now stops or delays evolution, mine and others's. I really know what is good and what is not good. Therefore, it's a very important, so important evolution is that everything hangs on it. It's like the purpose of life is that we evolve. It's like the earth is a school. The earth itself is a classroom and we are pupils. We are here to learn. And if we don't learn, we are laying on the job. We are not fulfilling the will of Dharma. Buddha pushed the will of Dharma. Like, it's necessary that human beings should evolve and let's give them a code of morality. Let's give them a belief in karma and other things so that they can push themselves into evolution. We have to say at this point that this story about evolution then, that's another thought, 
it is one of the most sore subjects, one of the most sensitive subjects, because evolution cannot be compensated by anything except by divine grace. Therefore, it is easily a politically incorrect subject. Try to think, if I, as a spiritual teacher, look at a person and say, I can see that you are not very evolved spiritually, because you are a young soul, and you didn't live a very long number of lives as a human being, and on the contrary, that person is a very evolved soul, because he or she lived lots of human being, human lives, how are you ever going to make compensation between those? Never. Like, I can teach you how to increase your intelligence, I can teach you how to increase your physical strength, we can teach you methods that expand the lifespan. We can teach you a lot of amazing methods from yoga, which can do things which are astonishing. But what can I do to teach you to catch up with the evolution? So therefore, when, one, when somebody is not very evolved, somebody is not very evolved, period. It, only the divine grace can take an unevolved soul, and says, here are 7,000 lifetimes added X office on the house for you, and suddenly you seem you are very evolved. It's like you are a very experienced soul with a lot of polishes, polished facets to your diamond, and there you are, very evolved. But except the divine grace, what can do the job? Nothing, really. And that's why this is a very discriminating factor in nature, and we have to use it with very great care because uh, of the sensitive nature of the subject. And this brings us automatically, after all, to the, I think everybody in this room now asks, or has asked, or maybe even before tonight, asked themselves the question, I wonder what would Swami say now, or if Swami is not an authority at this, I wonder what Ramakrishna would say now about me. Am I evolved or not so evolved? Like on a scale from 1 to 10, I am closer to the monkeys or closer to the devas. You know, it's like we come from some animal kingdom and we go into some superhuman kingdom. Which end of the range am I at? at the beginning of humanity or at the upper end of humanity? And therefore the question is, then how can we measure it? Besides the fact that Sri Ramakrishna can look and see, which is a purely subjective thing ultimately, like Master Ramakrishna or whoever, Manu or Veda Vyasa or somebody looks at Milareva, looks at you and says, you are a very old soul, you are very evolved, I can see through you, and I know it, even you yourself don't know how, what, you, what an old soul you are and how evolved you are, but besides that, are there any signs? Can we see anything there? And of course, I just quoted the Tibetan arch motive, which is the number of the lives lived. The Tibetans, in a simplistic way, although in their most metaphysical texts, they shun this idea of reincarnation in this childish kindergarten way, nevertheless, to explain it in a simplified way, they bring exactly this norm. The number of lives lived, like Buddha, when he reached enlightenment, 
he thought that he could remember 10,000 lifetimes as a human being, or maybe a few thousand lifetimes as a human being, and then the rest as animal, vegetal, and whatever. Lovely. If you put the average duration of incarnation for 400 years, which is the actual average duration for the reincarnation cycles, and you would multiply that with a thousand lifetimes, that would bring us to 400,000 years of spiritual existence in a thousand lifetimes. And if you would bring it to 5,000 lifetimes, that will mean something like 2 million years of existence as a human being, sometimes physical, sometimes as a ghost floating in the bardo, and then physical again, and then again out in the astral body, and then again physical ping-ponging between two worlds like this, commuting, shuttling between two worlds like this, and it takes times of the scale of millions of years. So the question is, the Tibetans would believe, the more you have gone through this meat grinder, the more evolved you are. And the idea, and I said it, I'm saying it every month when we talk about Ishvara Pranidhana in our final lecture on the last Friday in the first month course, the idea being that if you are an evolved soul, you naturally have lots of aspiration, you are dead bored by all the human joys, like everybody is trying to get money, family, richness, career, fame, this, that, and some souls couldn't care less about this thing. It bores them to death. And you could save the world and get the girl like James Bond. Totally boring. It's like I've been there and done that 20 times already, and it's become a boring movie. And you could as well reach honors as a scientist and Nobel Prizes. And it's dead boring like I've done that and it doesn't interest me. And you could have 15 children and organize them in a rugby team and see, watch them play rugby. It's like I've done that as well. And it feels like everything which you propose, everything which you suggest is dead boring. Haven't you got anything more interesting to offer in this life? Unfortunately not. And that's why there would be souls which are like a baby. What characterizes a baby is what Jack London in one of his novels termed beautifully as the thirst of life. You thirst to live. You are thirsty to live. And any experience you are greedy for it. Like a baby. A baby wants to learn. He forms neural synapses. And he wants to learn to walk, to touch. He takes something and puts it in its mouth. And chews on it to see if it's good to eat. And something. And sometimes touches red hot objects. And gets burned. And falls down and hurts itself. It's because we want and want and want and want to experience. And some other souls which are not young souls, are what we could say like they are born old. Ever since I was seven years of age, I could feel that I could do any job, that I had any skill, that I could be anything from a sportsman to a scientist and from a secret agent to a yoga teacher, and it all bored me to death. I was not interested in any of those, because the only thing which I wanted was to stop the movie. Because the movie was like Groundhog Day, for those of you who saw it. 
It's Groundhog Day again and again and again and again. And the young souls see that as fun. Great fun. When we are going to die, we are going to spend 200, 300 years in the astral body calming down. And then we are going to come back and get a new body. And it's going to be great fun again. Think again. If that will happen 10,000 times, will it still be great fun? Like when will it stop being great fun? Again to be a child, again to be suppressed, again to go through the confusion of the teenagers, again to fight to develop skills and career, again to have to sustain yourself to put bread on your table, again to take family responsibilities, again to see your children giving you the finger and going away, again to get old and sick and die, again to see the dear people around you dying on you and so like what's fun in this if it happens like if it happens five times it's fun but if like if coasters you can go to six flags and ride all those wonderful roller coasters won't you get bored of it at some point what if i'm asking you to ride those roller coasters a thousand times you'll get totally sick and tired of roller coasters and therefore it's just a matter of repetition of the same thing until it becomes redundant and that's why the tibetans they say evolution is just the result of a long number of lives therefore if among you there are and in yoga we think most of those people are here the other ones are in hatrin doing the full moon party those who are bored of all that stuff they come here and thus Generally, people who are spiritual seekers are precisely the people who don't need to chew on everything anymore because they chewed it already a million times and they know what it's made of. In The Matrix, the movie, when Neo is uh, disturbed by the disciplinarian mode of this woman who says it's our way or the highway, he wants to get out of the car. And the other woman, Trinity, grabs him in the arm and says, Neo, you don't want to do this. Why, he says, you know, he's a rebel. And she shows him the road and she says, because you know where that road leads. You've been a hundred times down that road. No, it's like life can get very boring after a number of repetitions. No, you can hope that if in this life you make a bunch of kids, Unlike in the 5,000 lifetimes until now where they all gave you the finger and disappeared, this time they are going to be extremely loving and passionate and good and brilliant and geniuses, you know, and you are going to bite the dust again. And your subconscious mind is going to get reinforced, finally realizing, oh, why, oh, why was I stupid once more? believing in this Fata Morgana, getting hypnotized by this universal illusion, by this universal Maya. And therefore, a sign of evolution for the Tibetans was exactly this sort of quest for spirituality, that you long for spiritual things, you have aspiration, and you don't know why. It's like it's an overpowering urge inside you, and every time when people tell you do this or do that, because that's what normal people do, it's like, oh, leave me alone. You know, I don't even want to hear about this thing. It's a complete turn off. But you see, therefore, 
the Tibetans would say that signs of spiritual evolution are what do you get from many, many lifetimes? You get a very complex spirit, like you are a very complex person, you are not what would be a simple person. You have this and this and this, and you can be many people in one and the same body. You feel that you are very rich psychologically and that you have accumulated many, many things. Not that, oh, I'm just a macho man or I'm just a sexy woman or I'm that a very intelligent man but have no heart, have no willpower, have no this, have no that. I can be everything. I can be full of willpower. I can be heartful and compassionate. I can be artistic and intuitive. I can have an amazing intelligence. I can be sexual in bed. I can be vital and a lover of sports and hiking and nature and movement. And I can be all those things because I'm complex. And it's a, it's the signs of it are therefore the aspiration after liberation. I want the Groundhog Day to be over and I want to see what comes after this Groundhog Day. So aspiration for liberation, aspiration after realizing God or knowing God if you prefer, after perfection, the desire to detach yourself. Very few people want to be detached. Every month I'm holding a lecture to the first month about aparigraha, the great huge value of detachment, that it is most beneficial to learn to be detached. Only those men and women who are detached can really live their lives at the highest levels. And guess what? 90% of the pupils who listen to that lecture, they shake their heads and they say, yes, yeah, Swami has made a very nice lecture tonight. And then they go home and continue being attached. Nobody really is trying to be detached with the exception of a few people who have that germ, who say, yes, that sounds right. I would like for the next year to be detached, to see, to live my life with detachment because I feel that attachment produces pain, suffering, blindness. It's a soap opera. My life is going down the drain precisely because of the attachment. So if you have the desire to go detached, that's a wonderful sign. It shows that you have some spiritual evolution because the spiritually unevolved person not even dreams, doesn't even dream about trying to get detached. Hey, yeah, getting detached. Why would I want to do that? No, because that person's motivation internally is different. They, they didn't reach that wisdom. And therefore, I have the desire to no longer run in circles like a squirrel in this Groundhog Day. And remember, not everyone has that. It's, it's normal that in a yoga school, around a spiritual teacher, where spiritual practices are being done, exactly such people come. And the other kind of people even feel turned off. They say, you guys... You don't want to do anything constructive. All you want is to get detached and meditate. That's not what I want to do with my life. That is a profound misunderstanding. Because, of course, those people are blinded by their own monkey mind because they understand that detached people don't do much. They are socially indifferent people. But actually, Jesus did much, being perfectly detached. But actually, Buddha did much, being perfectly detached. But actually Rumi did much 
being perfectly detached. But actually Ramakrishna did much being perfectly detached. So what are we talking about? It's a misunderstanding because we are not asking people to become indifferent and switch off. Detachment is something else which comes from a mature understanding of the values of life. Now, Tibetan gurus say you should love everybody. Now, why should you love everybody? Because in 10,000 lifetimes, almost every person in this room has been your wife, your husband, your child, your brother, your friend, your sister in one of those 10,000 previous lives. And therefore, you don't even know that. Therefore, who are you going to love first? Some of you are married men. You have a wife. And in this room, there in the back of the hall, there is your wife from your previous life. Whom are you going to love most? This one with whom you've been for 10 years or that one with whom you've been for 50 years? You just forgot, right? But forgetfulness is not an excuse because love is eternal, no? So then why can't you love 2 and 3 and 10 and 10,000? Jesus was loving the whole humanity as much equally, evenly. This is wisdom. This is detachment. If I'm attached, I'm saying I love this woman because this woman is my wife now and she's doing me French fries. <laughs> no? But this is pure attachment. This is not universal love anymore because I am blinded by these appearances. And that's why, remember, we look in the signs of evolution. Everybody in this room, before you decide that you want to evolve further, at least everybody wants to know the point where we start from. So which are the signs of evolution? I quoted some from the Tibetan mystical literature. Here is a Western opinion, and maybe you say it's not even an authorized opinion, because it comes from a tormented spirit, albeit one of the real brilliant creator spirit, creative spirits of the Western culture. I'm talking about Beethoven. Beethoven, born handicapped severely because of the diseases he inherited from his parents, nevertheless composed music which ennobles the soul. There is not a single piece of music by Beethoven, and he composed hundreds of them, which has a single disharmonious accord, which generates anger, or frustration, or depression, or confusion. The music that that man poured out of his chest, or wherever it came from, that music is beneficial through and through. And therefore, that man, handicapped or not, he expresses a great harmony. He expresses a great good. And Beethoven, in one of his writings, he says, I accept only one sign of evolution, and that is goodness. And the question which you ask yourself then in this moment is, am I good? Are you good? Are they going to write on your cross when you will be laid into the ground or whatever tomb will be on your, uh, whatever tombstone you will have on your grave? Are they going to write, here lies a good man, here lies a good woman? Or are they going to say, here lies an asshole, here lies a bitch, here lies a totally wicked, evil person? No? Like, look at your lives. Are you good? How much good did you do the last ten years? All the friends and the people who are around you, did you feed them 
Did you comfort them? Did you soothe them? Did you try to make peace? Did you try to alleviate their pains? Did you like, are you a good person? No? In Romanian folklore, as a slang expression where people say, Walter is as good as warm bread. No, like a good person. You know, people in the countryside, they love warm bread, fresh baked bread, you know, because it's very tasty. And they said that person is as freshly baked bread, like bread, like really good. No? Are you such a person? If you naturally tend to be good, Ludwig van Beethoven says, then you are an evolved person. I recognize you, I acknowledge you as an evolved soul. If in you there is a desire to do lots of darkness and lots of wicked stuff, means your soul is not that evolved. According to Beethoven, he is not the ultimate spiritual judge, is he? But there are others who are. For example, Paul, the Apostle of Christ, in Christianity, the more evolved you are, what does this result in? This is called the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are graced by God. You are closer and closer to salvation. You are closer and closer to Christ. You are closer and closer to the kingdom of heaven, to the saintliness. And would you wonder what the signs of this are? In one of his letters, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, he has a paragraph in chapter number 5 where he describes both the dark, vice-ridden nature of the human being and he describes the positive one. And he calls them the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Ghost. When somebody is graced by the Holy Spirit, somebody thus becomes more divinized. And here they are just for your curiosity if you never read them. Paul says, but the fruits, of the, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you joyful? Are you peaceful? Are you self-controlled? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you loving? That's what Paul considers evolution. Like if you are that, you are a bodhisattva. You are a Buddha to be. You are 80% enlightened. If you are that, you are close to the target. And therefore, we all inquire on these signs of evolution. No, It's a legitimate question that we want to evolve. Even the science fiction authors, even the materialistic science fiction authors, they speak about the civilization of the future 3,000 years from now or 30,000 years from now when humanity will be more evolved. You know all the speculations in which they don't call it facial angle because the facial angle thing is politically incorrect and we can't mention it because it's a sort of racial criterion. But the people of the future... Haven't you read through science fiction books or futurological broadcasts in Discovery Channel or something that the people of the future will use their mouth less and less, like animals use their jaws, but modern people are eating mashed potatoes and therefore we need the mouth less and less. So our children are having a smaller and more delicate mouth. 
unlike the dogs that have a big muzzle with big uh, canine fangs into it, and thus the more we go to there, the smaller the teeth in the future, the smaller the mouth, the jaw will become underdeveloped and smaller, the brain instead will grow bigger and bigger, so the head will start looking like a pear with the maxillar low. If you have a big jaw, you are a gorilla, but if you have a small chin and a big head here, you are like the man of the future, no? So even in science fiction there is the idea that the human race evolves, no? We are the result of an evolution and we can become more and more evolved, our children and the next generations will become more and more evolved in the future. Well, a few more ideas about evolution so that you see the impact of this concept. Roughly, the evolution is considered by all spiritualists to be a one-way process, like you cannot involve. Nature does not involve except on short durations of time and accidentally. Evolution always goes forward. This is an answer to those childish kindergarten theories discovered, <coughs> I'm sorry, developed by Hinduism and Buddhism in Panchatantra by the Hindus and in the Jataka stories by the Buddhists and which are for uneducated, illiterate people whose level of consciousness is also on Svadhisthana. I'm not saying that all the illiterate and uneducated people have a level on Svadhisthana. I said for those who also have a low level of consciousness. And for those people, they explain, everybody heard, at least in school, that apparently Hindus or Buddhists believe that if you do some really vicious stuff, you are going to lose merit and get a very bad karma, and in the next life you are going to be born as a dog or as a cockroach or as a wolf in the forest or something like this. Remember, that's a joke for kindergarten-minded people, which is simply meaning to talk like fairy tales in parabolic and allegoric ways to your subconscious mind. These are metaphors used for the subconscious mind. It has not been taken literally. Because why would a human spirit that is a partly polished diamond incarnate in a dog's body? What is so terrible about being incarnated as a dog except for an external onlooker who looks from outside and evaluates the situation? But for you subjectively, how can you say, oh, I killed people, I lied, I did this and that, and I am reborn as a dog? But wait a second, the dog is a healthy animal, and most of the dogs are happy. The dog doesn't know that it is a dog, and the dog doesn't realize that it could have been a human being, because it has no awareness, and therefore no reflexive consciousness. A dog can sometimes live a happier life than a human being. Like people in the slums of Calcutta live a worse life than the dog of Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> and therefore, what we are having here is, why would ever anybody have conceived the odd idea that to be born as a dog or as a gazelle in the forest is any punishment? Because the gazelle doesn't feel punished in any way for being a gazelle. And it's happy with its own animal life, which consists in e eating, sleeping, procreating, and all the basic animal needs of nature. 
Therefore, try to realize if indeed anybody was a torsionist for the Spanish Inquisition and you have to pay lots of karma for that, then you get born in Somalia or in Sudan or someplace. And by the age of 14, you've been raped three times per day. And then, as you saw in the movies or in the documentaries, you lie down on a field and vultures are eating you alive. That's hell. Not to be a dog. What hell is about being a reindeer in the forest? Therefore, remember that those stories were allegoric and great lamas and great gurus and great seers disagree profoundly ad literam with the idea that the human spirit can be reborn as an animal. It can't. Because if it's a matter of learning a bitter lesson, you can learn it in a human body very, very well. A brain of a dog cannot explain, express all the complexities of a human consciousness and psychology. Your astral body today is way too complex for a dog brain to express all the emotions. For example, many of you every day experience anxieties. But most dogs cannot experience any anxiety. Their brain is too simple for anxieties. The only anxiety an animal experiences is instinctual anxiety about not eating, not sleeping, and not being allowed to procreate. But for the rest, there is no anxiety in a dog that somebody could be or somebody did or I'm not going to fulfill some goal or I'm too stupid or this or that. And therefore, please understand, evolution goes forward. It is technically, practically impossible to go back. That was a childish metaphor used to tell to people that if you live a virtuous life, you earn spiritual rights, and if you live a vice-ridden life, you are pushed back, you dehumanize yourself, you decay as a human being. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it was exaggerated on purpose, so even people whose mind is childish can understand the point of it. Another very important point is that evolution can be automatic, as it is for animals, ignorant human beings, many of the beings living in the subtle universes, like spirits, entities of nature, or it can be deliberate, as it happens for spiritual seekers, for some human beings, therefore, and for some other incarnated beings. Therefore, this is it, the evolution is up till a certain point automatic. The wheel of Dharma spins. Vegetation turns into animal, animal turns into human, humans goes towards bodhisattvas. Which means the good news, or maybe the bad news for some of you, but I think it's good news, is that you are floating on a river which goes to the ocean of cosmic consciousness. Either you know it or not, either you wish it or not, you are going to be enlightened sooner or later. It's true, it may take a million years from today, but it's still inevitable. When Yudhishthira was asked by Dharma what is inevitable, he didn't say death and taxes. Yudhishthira said inevitable is happiness, bliss. This is inevitable. All of you here in this room are condemned to reach bliss one day, to be Buddhas. You like it or not, because you are floating on a river, and the very fact that your breath goes hum, sa, 
Hamsa, the very fact that you convert oxygen into carbon dioxide makes you float down the river. Only this river flows very slowly. From the point where you are to the ocean, it may still take a million years of floating with the rivers. 250 lifetimes, something like this. You can speculate, right? And therefore, this is automatic evolution. Unfortunately, there exist some false prophets of the New Age, people who are actually manipulated by their own tamasic spirit, by their own laziness. It's a cryptic laziness because people who don't practice spirituality hate and envy the people who practice it. People who have no faith, such as religious faith, they hate completely the people who have it, and they go mad at it. They feel like making documentaries, throwing buckets of cold water at those unconscious, idiotic, stupid people who do believe. How can you believe? You know, it's almost irritating. It's almost like the demons, all my demons are provoked because you can believe and I cannot you practice five hours of yoga per day and my subconscious mind knows that you are going quickly towards your nirvana and I, because I am still possessed by my demons, don't find the resources to pull the thumb out of my ass and do something. And instead of me acknowledging with humbleness that I am the lazy one and you are the industrious one, I actually am trying to put you down. I would like to see you failing because it would make me feel better in my laziness and in my inertia. And therefore, there are many people in the New Age subculture who are not really spiritual. And they found themselves on the position of writing books or preaching or giving teachings. And their teachings are actually teachings coming from the mouth of the demons not spiritual teachings. And then they teach people such as like this, oh, don't bother about spiritual evolution. There are some of these tormented people like Ramakrishna and Milarepa and, you know, Laleshvari and the likes of them who have a sort of uh, disease in their brain that they want to sit down and put their legs in funny positions and breathe and visualize Watch the sunset. Relax. Life is beautiful. I, I completely trust in life. Life is taking us all to Buddhahood, doesn't it? So why would you make any effort? It's the will of God. It's the will of life that we all are heading towards great wisdom and great... So don't worry. Which basically means don't come to yoga. Don't bother doing meditation. Don't do anything like this. Live your life. And evolution is there. What these lying people don't tell, either because they don't know it or because their demonic spirit pushes them to hide it, is that actually, while that is factually true, that if any one of you in this room chooses to make no spiritual efforts, I am not trying to be aware, I'm not trying to increase my consciousness, I don't want to feel my chakras, 
I don't want energies, I don't want to be moral and ethical, I don't want to meditate, the hell with all of it, I just want to watch the sunset and live a normal life. Do you evolve in such conditions? Yes, because you are on a river which floats to nirvana. But there are a couple of things which you don't know. One, that river will take a million years. Are you willing to wait? Many of the lazy people would accept anything for not making any effort. And they say, yeah, yeah, so what? I will wait a million years, right? What's the big deal? Yeah, I'm perfectly okay. Life is beautiful. I'm going to live another 400 lifetimes. And guess what? I'm going to be happy every time. No, this is, yeah, I don't care. Maybe you are unhappy with your life. I'm happy and, okay, you are accepting that. But then maybe you haven't looked around carefully because that's what the great spirits have observed. Evolution, when you don't do it yourself, is painful. Like the biggest way of mother nature to push people forward is by kicking them in the butt. Every kick in the butt, says a proverb, means one step forward. It's disgracious and painful, but it pushes you forward, doesn't it? And therefore, the sad truth is that 999 people out of a thousand evolve by converting oxygen into carbon dioxide and getting kicks in the ass from life itself. Life has to push you forward. How does it push you forward? For example, Beethoven says, evolution is goodness, but I am wicked. So how will life transform a wicked person into a good one? Guess what? Life can. It has a meat grinder, it has a steamroller in its equipment, and it can crush you so hard and so many times until you will choose not to be evil anymore. And it can do it a thousand times in a row in a thousand lifetimes in a row. And guess who has more perseverance and more persistence? The individual human being or life itself? Nobody can resist to the steamroller of the universal life. And therefore, how do you determine a person who is selfish and an opportunist, a person who says, I'm always doing what's good for me, I'm just chasing every opportunity, this is the way to live life. How will you determine such a person to become selfless, compassionate, and make a sacrifice for another human being? Oh, there are ways. You can be crushed so badly that eventually you will get to be a gentle person. But unfortunately, very few people do it out of their own sweet will because an egoistic person out of their own sweet will never get to do nice things. But then you get a cancer. And then you go to the church and say, God, me, cancer, in my bones, it's going to be agonizing. I'm going to be a good boy. Oh, yes. A cancer is a very good education. Like if you don't want to become a good boy by yourself, a cancer can make you into one. Epidemics, war, revolution, poverty, deprivation, the death of your children and of your dear ones, and so many other things can crush you to become a very nice person. 
compassionate, spiritual. <coughs> that means what the false prophets don't say is that natural evolution is enforced, is perforced. And thus, nobody likes it. It has been compared <coughs> with a shepherd that moves its flock of sheep towards the corral. How does the shepherd determine the sheep to go somewhere? By chasing them. He shouts at them. He casts stones at them. He scares them. He, sh he sets the dogs onto them and says, go. And the dogs go and bark and the sheep run like crazy or cows or cattle. So therefore, the universe can move us forward. But it takes a lot of whipping from behind because most people fall under the tamas, tamas guna, and they are couch potatoes. They say, I wish I would become a more compassionate person, but I don't feel right quite now. I'm a bit tired. I had a hard life. I am already 50 years old and I feel so tired. Will you leave me? A, give me a break. You know, I would like to stay quiet for 10 years or so and recharge my batteries. And then I'm going to practice compassion. Do you think that life listens to such idiotic excuses? Life has a plan which says go, 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 go. There is no moment of break. Nobody can stop <coughs> the river of Dharma, the wheel of Dharma. Didn't you hear so often people who said, exactly when my life was getting very good and I thought that all the things were settled, this had to happen and now I'm in shit again. Yes, because life hates a settled life. Life hates stagnation. That you reach to a point and you say, oh, I'm going to stay like this for the next 20 years. The Greeks have a proverb which says, you know how you can make God laugh? And the question is, how? And the answer is, tell him your plans. Tell your plans to God and God will roll with laughter because only ignorance thinks <clears throat> that it's going to go the way you planned it. But life has in store Lots of tests. We are going to speak about spiritual tests in the late night meetings. Life has lots of challenges because life has planned for you. Let's suppose you are not doing yoga and it's not in your books now to become a Buddha in this lifetime. But there is a plan. Exactly like children who come in the third grade learn the multiplication tables. There is no way to finish the third grade without having studied the multiplication tables. And therefore, there is a plan. What if you don't do that? No? Life does not accept. There is a graduation. It's in the books for you that you have to learn the multiplication tables in this life. For example, it's in the books for you, thanks, it's okay? It's in the books for you that you have to reach a certain degree of abnegation and selflessness in this life. Well, if you don't wish to reach it, Mother Nature has a whip to make you reach it because you are not going to get out of this life without having reached that. 
And therefore, the point is that natural, spontaneous, automatic evolution sucks because it is extremely slow and it is accompanied by the pain which accompanies all the telenovelas and soap operas of this life. Life is going you to make you, put you in impossible situations like a Dr. Zhivago, for those of you who saw that tragic, great movie, and your life is going to go through the meat grinder until in the end all you have is selflessness, love, detachment, a certain wisdom, and life has made you evolve. But it's like the dentist. It really hurts. And that's why, that's where the wisdom comes in. And that's what the New Age false prophets wouldn't say. That the great spirits from Buddha to Ramakrishna and from Milarepa to Rumi, they have simply used wisdom. And what is the wisdom? The wisdom is that all of you are doomed to reach Nirvana. If you are doomed to reach Nirvana, why not reach it in three years? Why procrastinate? Like it's the inevitable end. You are pushed like cattle in a corral by a wall that moves and pushes you towards that exit. There is no way of ending except through that door. Then if you are smart, why don't you run there directly? Why do you expect to be pushed from behind with death, with pain, with frustration, with waste of time? That means when a shepherd moves a flock of sheep, guess what sheep are getting the whip and the stones? The ones from the back of the sheep, of the flock. Never the front ones. The front ones are going ahead always. This is the spiritual person. This is the spiritual evolution in yoga. The yogis have realized why should we get whipped by mother life, by Shakti, by the great goddess who actually wants to push us to Samadhi. Why shouldn't we go out of our own sweet will since we have no choice? This is like the great joke in which God decided that Adam was not so well off being alone and put him asleep and took off his rib and created Eve. And then Adam came back to consciousness. He woke up. And then, this is not from the Bible, of course, it's just a joke. God tells to Adam, Adam, choose. Like, what is there to choose when only Eve is there? It's Eve or nothing, right? It's exactly like life tells you, choose. There's nothing to choose. It's been chosen already for you. You are going to be a Buddha. It's only a matter of time. You can kick your feet as much as you want. You can commit suicide. You can do whatever you do. You can't get out of this universe because you didn't create yourself. You didn't create this universe. You didn't create life and its circumstances. And as thus, you don't have any control over it. It's exactly like Paul, the Apostle of Christ, writes in one of his letters. He says, either we know it or not, we still, all of us, belong to God. Even the atheists, they still belong to the divine consciousness, only that they foolishly don't admit that it exists, which doesn't make any difference. You can believe that other stars do not exist, and they still exist, even if you choose to believe that the earth is flat or whatever other weird thing you choose to believe. 
And that is why, again, to make the long story short, remember, evolution can be deliberate, like you choose to evolve. I realize that life is a process of evolution, that the universe expects me to graduate as a Buddha. I have to reach to the ocean. This river goes to the ocean. Then why shouldn't I take a motorboat and sail quickly down the river? Why shouldn't I dial for a helicopter to pick me up and take me directly to the ocean? Why should I procrastinate? Because I can anytime turn back to the river and sail down the river. I can come for a holiday on the river. Let's do some white water rafting, no? Let's raft down the river. But I'm coming from the ocean. I'm not a prisoner of the river. I graduated and now I am a traveler. Now I am a visitor. While people who are on the river, they are like inmates, they are like prisoners. They cannot get out of the river before they fulfill the project. And that is why, this is therefore the big idea. Spiritual people are always doing deliberate evolution. Ignorant people stay in the laziness and inertia of automatic evolution. But spiritual people evolve deliberately and that's what spirituality is about when you stand on your head when you do laya yoga when you do moral and ethical self-discipline and a thousand other things which you do every time you accelerate your evolution why because you don't want to be the back sheep in the flock and you take responsibility you say i realize today suddenly that i'm doomed to evolve and thus, I have taken my own evolution in my own hands. I don't need nature to push me like an ignorant cow. Because I am not a cow. I am a human being. And I am asking myself, who am I and why am I here? Therefore, the difference is, if you want, the condition of self-awareness, the condition of consciousness. An animal cannot accelerate its evolution because it can't ask itself, what's the matter with me? But a human being can. And that's why human beings are the first ones that can deliberately become Buddhas. That's why all the spirituality, Tibetan Buddhists and others, they say a precious human life. If you'd have been born as a sheep, that is not a very precious life. Because it's automatic, animal, instinctive, and you can't do anything to accelerate your evolution because you don't have self-awareness. But the human kingdom is a very special offer. Like on this planet, there has appeared at least one biological form that has awareness. And this form is the only form which can go to enlightenment until today. There may appear other biological forms on this planet which will have self-awareness. Until today, dolphins and elephants and gorillas and whales cannot do anything comparable to yoga like accelerating one's spiritual evolution. It's a deliberate thing which belongs to the conscious beings. Remember that this doesn't tell us anything about the speed because we can have very evolved beings who evolve very slowly because they are lazy or incapacitated and we can have very non-evolved beings, young souls, who are taken by a rush of aspiration and longing and they evolve with a great speed. 
So it doesn't always go that the people who are most evolved move fastest. You can be 80% up on the mountain and going very slowly, and you can be at the bottom of the mountain and running up the mountain with big steps because your urge is big. So we should make a difference between the level of evolution and the speed of evolution. The speed of evolution can be fast or slow. There are many methods of spirituality, but the Tibetan Buddhists, when they look at their tantric method, they say tantra, they refer to the Tibetan tantra, so let's take it in that context. They say tantra is the form of yoga for reaching enlightenment in one lifetime. Guess why was it necessary to say that? Because it automatically implies that there are other forms of yoga which do not produce enlightenment in a lifetime. They can produce enlightenment in five lifetimes. Every life you remember and you continue. You take it from where you left it last time, which many of you are already point. And therefore remember that there are methods which can give enlightenment. Yogananda Paramahamsa says, down to three years, of super intense practice and there are methods which can give it in 10 lifetimes therefore even deliberate super accelerated or deliberate slightly accelerated we need Kali Kali is just a landmark it's just a post on my way which is very very close to the target so I'm looking at that post I'm saying if I get there from there I just have 10 more meters and I'm home so that's how you should look upon it. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.